Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends, Sean Walker of Simple Cove. Evening, fellas. Good evening. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. How are you doing? I'm doing great. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also want to thank our new patrons to our Patreon campaign, Rakesh Patel and Drew PC. Thank you for listening and for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. So let's get right into it. Guy, you've got the first question today. Oh, I do. Sweet. This comes from Eric at the Poplar Shop. Huh. That's a new name. It is. (laughs) And Eric is asking, do you believe a grounding wire is required for home hobby dust collection systems? And the answer to that, Eric, is no, I don't believe it's necessary. But what, what Eric's referring to is that when you have a, a, a pipe and you start hurling particles through the pipe, it's going to build up static electricity, especially in plastic which most most, uh, dust collection systems do use plastic. In some cases, you know, you've got metal HVAC ducting or things like that, but still the particles traveling by a a fixed, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Going that fast past a fixed thing is going to cause static electricity. People will say if you don't ground your dust collection system, your shop is going to catch fire and explode. That's not necessarily true. For it to build up, for your uh, a home hobbyist or even a, you know a small cabinet shop to build up enough elect- static electricity to actually cause a spark that will ignite sawdust is immense. That's why you only find stuff like that in very large-scale commercial systems. But for home use, or I said, even a small shop, it's completely unnecessary, I think, anyways. Hui, you're the engineer. You tell me. (laughs) No, I don't see it to be necessary for a home shop. I'm actually using galvanized steel ducting, uh, HVAC ducting. And so with the flex hose that I'm using, which has a metal coil actually wrapped into it, I don't really see it to be a problem. And on top of that, my dust yeah, but are you are you are you grounding that metal coil that's in the hose? No, no. So then it doesn't matter if it's metal hose or metal wire in there or not. It has to be grounded for it to actually do something. Well, it is it is connected to the grounding wire on the dust collector. Well, that's what I asked. And then that is connected to the ducting. And then connected to the flex hose. All right. So you do have a grounded then? I don't have like a specific grounding wire. No. No. But you still have your system grounded. Right. Correct. That's correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. yep. But the question is, do you, do you believe it? Do you believe it's necessary? Or no, 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 no. I didn't. For instance, I did not take an extra measure to wrap grounding wire around all the ducting and all the hose. I mean, I've seen guys take like a copper grounding wire, go all the way around their flex hose, go all the way uh, around their their hard line, and then uh, connect it to their dust collector. I, I, I did not do that. I didn't think it was necessary. I felt like my system was grounded enough that it wouldn't be an issue. I've never had an issue. I've never had a, a shock of static electricity come through. I never had, I never had dust or debris collect 
on the inside of the pipe where I can see that, you know, the dust or debris is sort of standing on end because of static charge. It's never happened. I have had um, my shop vac, you know, build up a little bit of uh, electricity and, and shock me, but just mm-hmm. a little bit. But as far as the dust collection, do I believe? I don't know. I mean, I don't have it grounded and I've never had an issue. Um, I'm not educated enough to say, no, it's not required. Uh, do I believe if you were to ask me, I would say no. Um, I, just because I've never had an issue and I've had PVC and I now have the metal ducting as well. And I've, I've never had an issue with static electricity shocking or doing anything like that from the DC from my dust collection, the piping. All right. That was easy. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an engineer. I don't understand the the physics of it, but just the, 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 I understand the, the generalities of it and I don't, I don't think it's necessary. So, I mean, I've run up, I've run my track saw once with a non-static hose and that builds up static electricity pretty damn fast. And I yeah. get shocked when you touch the hose, but huh. is that shock enough to cause a spark in your dustbin that will actually start a fire? I don't think the, the question's ever been whether or not it'll cause a dust explosion, mm-hmm. but whether or not it's enough to heat wood particles enough to actually cause them to uh, start burning. I don't think that's possible with the smaller dust cloud system. I don't think so either. Yeah, like you, I, I've just been shocked by the old shop vac. And I mean, you can see dust just clinging to, to the hose and whatnot, but same yeah. here. All right. Who's got the next question? I don't know. I think it's Sean. Yeah. Yep. So I've got the next one here and this one's from Travis. Hello guys. First of all, great podcast. The questions are always my favorite part of any podcast. So I really love your format. My question is regarding a standard drum sander versus an orbital drum sander. I've seen a few on Craigslist for sale. The one I'm considering is a 2010 jet 2244 max for $400 and doing research. I see a lot of the new models are random orbit. Will this make a huge difference? I'm on a budget. So a new machine isn't going to happen. And I haven't seen any used random orbit models for sale. I believe what Travis means when he says random orbit is he's, is he's talking about the, an oscillating drum sander. Not an orbital drum sander, at least I think. Do you guys agree with me on that? Or yeah, am it's, I it's oscillating. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, okay. hey, 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 Travis, if you if you see a twenty two forty four jet oscillating drum sander for four hundred bucks, jump on it. Absolutely, <laughs> that's is a great price. Yeah. Um, so I guess to start off, the key difference. If you're not aware or familiar with it, an oscillating drum sander, the difference between an oscillating and a regular drum sander uh, is not only does the drum spin, obviously, but on the oscillating mode, um, it's going to move the head left to right, side to side. And that's going to, according to reviews, help minimize the visual scratch patterns in the workpiece and increase the lifespan of the paper because it apparently keeps it cooler. I wanted to take this question because I'm actually looking at buying a new uh, Jet 2244 oscillating drum sander myself because I have a 10 or 12 year old Performax 1632 that I want to get rid of. And I have read quite a few reviews and, and, and from what I've seen, people mention that they can see a noticeable difference in the material uh, with the oscillating mode and that it's almost equal to a random orbit sander surface. Now, granted, the review I read didn't mention if they changed the papers to work up the grits. But they mentioned several times that they did see a huge difference when they turned off the oscillating mode and just ran the board through. Uh, they saw a big difference in the oscillating mode versus just a, a traditional drum sander. Uh, they, they didn't see the, the, the straight lines that you would typically see. 
And another thing that I saw mentioned with the oscillating mode is the sandpaper has less buildup, which means less burning. Again, these are all reviews that I've read. Um, I've not asked anyone. I don't know of anyone that has the the oscillating drum sander. Eric, Eric at the Poplar Shop has one. Oh, he has an oscillating one? I believe so. All right. Well, I will be asking him. Eric, let me know. Uh, now, a couple of negatives that I read about. Again, I don't have this. This is just from what I've read is that the, the sander leaves wavy ridges. I'm not sure if that's how accurate that is. It's just hearsay. And that the sandpaper can possibly loosen up in the oscillating mode. But these are all reviews. Apparently, Eric has that. So if you want to DM him on Instagram. <laughs> but I think uh, personally, um, I'm going to be buying the Jet 2244 oscillating and replacing my old, tired, beat-up Performat. Performax 1632. It looks mm-hmm. like a solid machine and the oscillating from what I've read um, is a great selling point. How do you guys feel about the oscillating mode on the drum sanders? I, I've never used one to, to really give an opinion one way or another. Uh, the, I don't know, uh, this is just me, I don't know of any of the, the smaller units like this that are oscillating other than the Jet 2244. And if it's such a great thing, why... Aren't there more of them? Mm. That is one thing that I saw in my research that the jet was the only one. Yeah, that's the only question I have. I'm not knocking it because I've I haven't seen the finish it uses or finish it, it it creates. But you know, it's just one of those things. If it's if it's such a great thing, why isn't everybody doing it? Because stuff gets copied so fast. I've only used the standard drum sander, so I really don't have much of an opinion on it. And I, I have the Supermax, the same one that you used to have, Guy. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it was a great machine, or it is a great machine. I s- still use it, and I very much enjoy it, and it's extremely convenient to have, especially when sanding veneers. I can't say one way or the other, and I don't know. I've never used one. Yeah. To be honest, I-, I didn't even realize that Jet had the oscillating back in 2010. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, they've had it for a very long time. So, but even if it wasn't oscillating, Travis, four hundred bucks for a twenty-two inch open-ended drum sander, especially a, a a jet, that's a really good price. Yeah, jump on totally. It. Yep, agree. Nine years ago, I paid, I think, seven hundred for mine. Mm. So yeah, it's a great deal. But cool, that is what I've got. Hui, what do you got for us? Okay, this is from John from Arizona. Not liking the end of the day cough. I've been investing in dust collection. I use a Festool dust extractor for small tools. I run a WEN air filter. I have built a DIY cyclone separator out of an old Jet 30 micron bag collector. The one tool that still throws dust all over me and into the air is my saw stop table saw. What? You mean the saw stop doesn't prevent dust? (laughs) I'm thinking of investing in overhead dust collection. But I'm wondering if it is practical, effective, and worth the investment. As I think Sean has the SawStop dust collection guard, I'm wondering how well it works or if there are better alternatives. What is your experience? So while, Sean, I believe you do have the overarm dust collection for the SawStop, I also do. And I had gotten it on a deal where if you buy the saw, you get either the overarm dust collection or the uh, the mobile, mobile base. base. Right. I opted for the overarm dust collection so there wasn't you know an additional investment in there, even though I think you're actually probably paying for it because you bought the saw. I will say that uh, the overarm dust collection is effective in collecting the dust from the blade. The problem is 
I dislike putting it on and taking it off, and I dislike not having not having the blade in plain sight of what I'm cutting. To me, it is effective, but I don't really particularly find it very practical. Uh, the only times I really use it on a regular occasion is if I'm doing a lot of cabinet cutting. So if I'm cutting down a lot of plywood, I'll use it. But for most of what I do, which is cutting hardwoods, I'm not using it very often. And in fact, actually, it's kind of a pain if I'm going from doing a rip cut to a cross cut uh, with, say, my miter with my miter gauge or my cross cut sled. You cannot have that thing on if you're using a cross cut sled and it becomes a little bit of a nuisance if you're using a miter gauge with it. What's your experience been like, Sean? I actually, I don't have the overarm. I have the uh, blade guard that came with the saw, just mm-hmm. um, the little plastic one with the port on the back. Right, right, uh, right. Yeah, it it works okay. Obviously, with any of these, you're going to have to make sure your blade is, is covered on both sides in order for it to pick up the most um, dust possible. Otherwise, it's just going to spit it all over the table. You're right in that it does get in the way when you're using your miter gauge, um, and you've got to remove it if you're not doing a through cut. So if you're you know, doing a little groove or something, you've got to pop it out. However, it works better than not having with just a little riving knife on there, obviously. So I keep it in there as often as I can. And, uh, I think it, it I can't tell you how well the over, if, if the one that we has is better. No, I have this, I have the, I have the same one you have, Sean, the blade guard. Okay. Cause you said, oh, there is one they sell that's extra that's over, like that is an arm that swings over and, and puts it on top of the blade. Well, that's there are just, two versions. That, that's just the tube that hooks into your, uh, central dust collection system. I mean, if you were using like a, uh, but the, 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 the guard attaches the same way, the, that's correct. It's exactly the same. Yeah. Okay. So, so it, do, it just doesn't like hover over the top or you can push it up and pull it down. Yeah, no, that's, no, that's right. Okay. That's right. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, apparently I didn't, I thought it was a, um, th- they do sell one that that's a floating overarm dust collector. Okay. They do sell you know that what? as well. You're right. And I, I forgot about that. Um, I just got the one that yes. they include with uh, if you're if you're doing the promotion, yeah, I so, got you. So yes, I have the same one you have. We you just have the arm that makes it easier, and moves the hose out of the way, and this and that. So yes, right. We have the same one. Then um, it works, like I said, pretty decent. I'm not sure if it's going to work any better than the floating arm. It's just going to be more convenient and easier to move out of the way versus what we have. I'm always going to use it if I if I can, unless I'm doing a uh, like a, a groove or a non through cut, then I'll move it or cross cut sled or miter gauge sometimes. Yeah, but see, that's a lot of that's a lot of operations though that you don't use it in. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, but I'm primarily using it with cutting stuff to width. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It it is, and sometimes when I'm using the uh, the, the miter gauge, I'll just lift the plastic part up, which is probably not the safest thing to say. But I will oftentimes just lift the plastic piece up and make the cut, put it back down again. Not <laughs> probably not very safe. Um, instead mm-hmm. of just removing the whole thing, so. Don't do as I say, or don't do as I do. <laughs> yeah. But what about you, Guided? Uh, I, obviously, I don't have a saw stop, as everybody probably knows by now. Um, <laughs> the the dust collection on my Powermatic is is excellent. The Steel City I had before that, it was okay. The only time my table saw really kicks up dust is when I'm cutting something and the off cut or the, the, the material to the left of the blade doesn't completely encapsulate the blade all the way through the cut. So in other words, let's say I got a board that's 
nine inches wide and I want to make it eight and seven eighths and I'm just cutting an eighth inch off the outside. Well, there's no solid wood on the other side. So the dust just goes everywhere. It's not drawn down into the, the, the shroud underneath. That's the only time I really get anything on my saw at all. So cutting plywood, doing rip cuts, doing cross cuts, I get very little if no dust on my, on my, from my table saw. It's very little, I should say. Um, that's the only time I wish I had, you know, like uh, the other day I was dressing some rough lumber and I wanted to get the max I could out of these boards and, you know, and I'm, I'm cutting the, the, the first raw edge off and there's dust everywhere because of that. Cause I was, you know, in some cases cutting off an eighth or a 16th of an inch just to get a, 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 a clean edge on it. So that dust just flies all over the place. But other than that, I really don't have a big problem with dust collection. I think a more effective way of getting decent dust collection on a table saw is having that shrouded design underneath the cabinet. I had a cabinet saw before this, which was just completely open underneath the cabinet. Obviously, it was a cabinet saw, but underneath the the cast iron top, it was just all open. There was no shroud over the blade. Yeah, the dust just kind of falls into it. It's, And that's what I was right. saying on my Powermatic. I know on the saw stop, it's the same way, I think. Where it's mm-hmm. got a shroud underneath there. And so mm-hmm. the dust collection has actually got a hose hooked up to it right by the saw blade. Yeah. And it pulls all the dust right out. I, I think all the saw stop saws have a shroud, though, even the contractor saw. So I'm wondering, because I don't, uh, Sean, do you get, even when you're not using the blade guard, do you get a lot of sawdust on your table? Because I don't get a lot. I, I mean, I get some. Yeah, but it's not it's not like a ton, is it, though? I mean, it's not like an exuberant amount. No, but I, I guess we also got to look at it. I don't, how many boards back to back to back is he cutting to get that much dust? I mean, if I were to cut like Guy saying, you know, five, 10 boards in a row, I'm going to get a decent amount of dust. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and when I open my cabinet, look on the inside, it's, it's got to be cleaned out. Like it's not the best dust collection, even on the inside mm. of the cabinet. I got a bunch of, of sawdust. See, mm. I get absolutely zero sawdust inside my cabinet. I want to mm. say that your dust shroud is up higher than the uh, saw stop. Well, it, there, it actually, there's a, it's got the four inch port on the back, mm-hmm. right? But then that goes down to a, like maybe an inch and a quarter or two inch. Maybe it's a two inch hose. I'd have to take a look at it. But it goes down to a smaller hose. And that hose is attached to a shroud, you know, covers the bottom half of the, the entire bottom half of the blade. Yeah, that's the same way it is on the inside of the soft stop as well. Yeah, yeah, so unless I forget to turn my dust collector on, no sawdust makes it inside the cabinet. I think the saw stop has a four-inch hose that goes to the... Uh, well, I, you know, I can't remember. It's been a long time since I've looked in there. I'll have to check. It, it, it may be. It may be a four-inch hose. I don't think it is, though. On mine, I don't know. I don't and know. there's three. And there's one thing that we're... There's one variable that we've not touched on, and it could be the dust collection. You know, he... Yeah. He and or I could not have as an efficient uh, run as you guys do. You know, I, I go over the wall, up the wall, over again and down. And mm. I'm using, you know, just a regular uh, grizzly dust collector. I just Maybe I just don't have enough suction. It pulls it down, but doesn't pull it in the shroud. I'm getting like 700 CFM on the end of my hose. And you're not running any ducting. You're just using like the... No, I'm saying at the, at the end of my hose that hooks up to the, it's 700 CFM. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. 
and you're not using any like long runs or no. anything like that. No, it's a single hose that's run through a manifold. Before I put the manifold on, I was getting close to 900. Right, right. I think what I'm going to do is buy one of those uh, meters and actually test that. Anemometer? Before you buy one, make sure that the one you do actually will spin up to a high number. Some of those anemometers that you that you see will only go up to like 200 CFM. Okay. I will look into that and report because back. Because they're, they're, they're designed for people like, you know, that are flying kites. Uh, I gotcha. And they're just giving you a general direction of, or a general idea of airspeed. It's not really yeah. designed for that. If you know anybody in the HVAC industry, they'll have, you know, really good ones. They're designed to, you know, to do uh, ducting in houses and they measure very accurately. There you go. Guy, I think you got the next question. Oh, I do already? Back to me already? Jeez. Back to you. Okay. This comes from Will. It says, this is this is a deep subject, but I'm going to try to answer it as succinctly as possible or as quickly as possible, I should say. Hi, guys. Love the podcast. Well, thank you, Will. He says, I have a question on pricing, bidding your work. Do you have a standard formula, e.g. four times material? Do you ask a potential client how much they're looking to spend and see if you can do it profitably? Any banter or guidance on the subject would be appreciated. Hope to make it into the podcast. Well, you did, Will. I'm going to answer his second question first, which is, do you ask the potential client how much you're looking to spend and see if you can do it profitably? Absolutely. It should be one of the first questions that come out of your mouth is budget. Uh, some customers will tell you, I don't care. They, they do care. Uh, if you give a customer a $5,000 price and they're only looking to spend $1,500, you've just wasted your time and their time. Get an idea of what their budget is. Now, as far as a standard formula, we actually talked about this quite a bit on the other podcast that I'm on, the Against the Grain podcast, also available on iTunes. There's two ways you can price your work. You can price your work based on your cost, put a, you know, a, a standard multiplier for your profit margin, or you can price your work based on market value. I'm a big believer in pricing your work based on market value. So let's say that you know you have a customer that's looking for a farmhouse table. You ask them what kind of wood they want. Well, I want it made out of this and so forth and so on. If you price it based on your cost, especially for something like a farmhouse table, if you base it on your cost and then multiply it by you know four times, whatever that number it comes out to be, you may be pricing yourself out of the market. Your price may be $2,000 while the going price for farmhouse tables in this area is about $750. Mm. Most of the time they're made out of construction lumber and painted. So you have to look at what the pricing is in your market. A good example is real estate. I mean, you can you can rent an apartment here, a really nice apartment, you know, 1,500 square feet for about $1,000 a month. You put that 1,500 square feet on Central Park West and it'll be, you know, eight grand a week. It's all what basically what the market can bear for something. So there are times when you'll have to price stuff not based on what your cost is at a lower profit margin, based on what the market will bear. I'm a big believer in using market-based pricing. 
Now, the other way to do it is to figure it up from cost. The way to figure it from cost is really simple. You have the cost of materials. That's easy to figure out. The next thing you want to do is add your labor burden to this. Now, this is not, you know, $80 an hour, $100 an hour, or $50 an hour. This is what would be the price of your cost before your profit. So in my case, I charge my labor at $25 an hour. That's just what I would pay myself. So let's say I've got uh, $1,000 in cost of materials and I've got 20 hours of, of labor at $25 an hour, which is... 500 dollars yep. 500 yeah, I'm using fuzzy math there. <laughs> so I have a total cost of $1,500. Now it's $1,000 for material and $25 an hour at tw- 20 hours is my labor burden. Then you take that amount and then you add your margin to it or your profit. Thing that people don't realize is that if you multiply that by two, that's not 100% profit margin. That's 50% profit margin. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. So if you paid a dollar for something and you sold it for $2, what's your percentage? What's the profit percentage of your sales price? 50%. So in most cases, I'm using um, a six, I think it's like a 641 multiplier, which gives me about a 40% profit margin, if that makes sense. And I'm, I'm mostly using that to figure out my cost, not to figure out my price. Because I know if a customer is telling me, if I want the job, the customer is telling me they have a budget of $2,500, I'm not going to tell them it's Four grand, but if I don't have anything coming in and I need the work, I'm going to sell it for that price. So that's what you have to really look at. That was my short answer. I could go on <laughs> about this all day. What? What? How do you guys feel about this? Or did I cover everything and we can? I'm going to let Hui take that. I mean, again, I don't sell anything, <laughs> so Hui, take a stab at it, bud. So my most, and it's a commission I'm still working on. When I priced it out, it was priced based on the market value. And it was priced based on the market value because I went online and there are a lot of furniture manufacturers out there, very good ones, uh, that openly list their price for a piece. So take, for instance, Thomas Moser. So if you go on to Thomas Moser and you look at how much a chair by Thomas Moser costs, you look at its complexity, look at it, look at its architecture and how it's made and be able to decipher as to whether or not you can make that piece at that quality for that price. And and that's basically what I did was I went on, I went online. I looked at what a chair of equal quality and of equal detail would cost if that customer were to go to Thomas Moser and buy it. And that's how I priced it. And the reason why I did it that way was because I didn't know how long it was going to take me to make this. And it would be extremely in my opinion, unfair because I'm extremely efficient. I am not a production shop. I do not have my workflow figured out for- You mean you're, you're extremely inefficient? I'm extremely, yeah, ex- excuse me. I'm extremely inefficient, right? So, okay. you know, I go out in the shop and maybe I get two hours out there uh, on a good day. So how much can you really accomplish and how much of that is is spending your time like scratching your head, figuring out, okay, I got to go to the next step. All right, what do I have to do for that? You know, I don't have all that figured out. So for me to price based on 
what you were saying, Guy, before costs, it would be somewhat unfair for the customer because it would be an exuberant amount of money for the hours that I'm spending, you know, crossing my, you know, figuring this stuff out and, and figuring out my workflow. So I had to go from a uh, market value point of view. And then it can actually work to your benefit in some cases too, mm-hmm. because a going price for something may be very high in your area and it doesn't have a lot of cost or labor to it. Mm-hmm. So somebody in your area might be selling farmhouse tables built out of, you know, everybody in your area is selling farmhouse tables built out of construction lumber for $4,000. That's like, woohoo. <laughs> yeah. You're in the money there. Yeah. That's, and so, but if you base your price on your cost, you're going to be undercutting everybody else, which right. is fine, but that's called leaving money on the table. You right. don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I am currently selling, or I got a couple of commission pieces. They're just tabletops that I'm making for a buddy that uh, he has some legs from Ikea and a little filing cabinet that he's going to set it on. He's going to set this in his, uh, set these up in his office. So what I did do on this is just take the price of the lumber uh, because I already had that spec'd out. And then I just added the hourly rate times the number of hours that I thought it would be. No special math. I'm probably losing my butt on it, but the lumber is covered and uh, I'm making a little bit of money on it. So that that is pretty much what I do, but I don't sell a whole lot of pieces. Maybe these two tabletops will be all that I sell this whole year. So it's not like I, I do this often. But it's important to mention that you're you're looking at it not from the point of view of this is a a business and I'm, I'm here to make a profit. You're looking at it as, I mean, it sounds like you're helping a friend out. It sounds like you're having fun with it. So to yeah, me, it doesn't absolutely. sound like a typical business practice. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And I guess you can look at it like what I do. And if you're not selling a lot of pieces and doing a lot of commission work, Hey, I, you know, I probably got $150, $200 worth, worth of money that I can throw towards whatever tool I want to buy next. Yeah. I'm going to lose money on the labor and all that, but at the end of the day, I'm just going to be out there anyways. And, and I'm making a little bit of money to throw towards another tool and you know, the, the lumber's completely covered. So. Yeah. But if you're a hobbyist, you're, you're, you're not losing money. Right. Regardless, unless you have to outlay cash for something you're not going to recoup, your time as a hobbyist isn't worth anything. You're right. It it doesn't really have value because you're, and 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 I'm not saying that your time is not valuable, Sean, but what I'm saying (laughs) is in that sense of the word where you're doing something for a friend or family, you cover your costs of material. You throw, you know, say, you know, okay, and I'll do it all for you for, you know, 250 or $300. Just pay for my materials. Yeah. You're going to be out in the shop doing stuff anyways. You like to be out in the shop. So it's like, this is actually a good thing. You're absolutely correct. I'm not wasting money on time or wasting time. I guess what, what I, what I sort of mean by that is um, I'm not exactly charging for uh, for the the tool, you the wear and tear on the tools, the bits, this, the yeah, that on the... Yeah. You know, but that just comes whether I'm using it myself or doing it for a friend. Yeah, you're, I mean, at the end of the day, you're right. It's not really wasting anything. I made a little bit to to cover, you know, money for another tool or, or whatever. So I guess you can look at it that way if you're for your hobbyist that randomly sells stuff. Yeah. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this guy because I know you you ran a small business at at, at one point. Did you ever? I ran big businesses. Other well, I mean, a woodworking businesses. business. I mean, like, we're, you know, I understand that, but I mean, your own personal woodworking business. Uh, did you ever, did you ever have a, 
I guess, a shop fee as in, hey, this is the wear and tear on my tools and I'm no. going to, sorry, no. go ahead. No, that's just cost of doing business. That's depreciation of your assets. That's a tax thing. Okay. Every job has consumables also, you know, sandpaper, glue, finish, right. stuff like that. And that's just a matter of, you know, putting a, uh, a percentage in. So let's mm-hmm. say you have a cost of $2,000 or $1,500 for materials. Add an extra 10% onto that for all your consumables. Gotcha. Yep. And you're, you're fine. Right. But very rarely would you, you know, like completely blow through a a circular saw blade or your table saw blade on a single project. Oh yeah, sure. It's a hundred dollar blade. You know, you used $5 of of its life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's irrelevant at that point. I don't know if we want to cut this question short, but I was going to give an, an exact example of what I'm being paid for these tabletops and the breakdown of the lumber versus how many hours I quoted it. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to hear it. So to give you an example of the tabletop, so I've got two tabletops that are 26 and a half inches wide and 80 inches long. I've got two of them, and it was and they're made out of ash. And I've got two mahogany battens on the bottom. The the, the species of the battens doesn't matter. I already had that stock, and they're getting dyed black and I'm using India ink and then I'm going to be uh, rolling on uh, polycrylic satin that I already have. So just to give an idea, I, 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 I quoted him 375 for both of these tabletops and the lumber I got for 150 and that is uh, actually it's like 125 or 130 uh, for all the lumber. It was six quarter ash. I had a extremely good source and I uh, emptied him out. Uh, so one, we'll say one thirty for the lumber. So the remaining money is what I quoted for um, what I thought it would take. How long it would take me? Right around ten hours at, at twenty five an hour to to finish these two tabletops. While it it's working out to uh, to my benefit, it, the the timing is is right. I did have a setback on it that, of course, I didn't count for because I didn't know uh, the the table the tabletops cupped a bit, so I had to rip them back down and and uh, flatten them back out and glue them back up. I didn't. Uh, account for that. But now that everything is back on track and I've probably got about eight and a half hours in it so far. So that leaves me about an hour and a half left to dye and apply a few coats of finish. And I think I'm going to come right out right at the 10 hours at 25 an hour uh, for the the total of, you know, 375 for for these two tabletops. Just to, I guess, to give you guys a, a breakdown and, and dive into the details on the only commission that I've done this year and probably will do this year. Yeah. Right. So yeah. b- bottom line to all this, Will, is there really isn't a standard formula for anything. Look at what you can sell things in your market for. Don't leave money sitting on the table, but don't soak customers, I guess, is, a, is, is just good business sense. Right. Get paid for your work. And uh, some people say my prices are high, but I'd rather make one piece for a thousand dollars and 10 pieces for a hundred dollars. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's another way to look at it. All right. That's me. I got the next one. All right. This one is from Nicholas Venaria on it's Nicholas on Instagram. Hey guys, I'm a big fan of all three of you and love the show. Question for you all. What brand of router bits do you prefer with there being tons out there, which is your go-to brand of bits? Whiteside, Freud, Amanda, Amanda, listen to that, Amana, <laughs> CMT, Irwin, et cetera. Here are lots of tour views out there, but never never a lot on router bits. I would love to hear your thoughts on it and see which one you guys like. Keep the podcast coming. 
Appreciate that, Nick. Uh, for the, I'm going to split this up and say for the router table and the C, and for the CNC. But f- to begin with, for the router table, I buy either Whiteside uh, or Freud, and I've been testing some spiral bits from uh, Bits and Bits Company, which I like. And those three brands are primarily what I stick to for the router, or the Whiteside, Freud, and the spiral bits from uh, Bits and Bits. For the CNC, since owning it, I've only purchased bits except for a few white side bits, primarily from Bits and Bits Company. And I mainly stick to the uh, 30 degree and 45 degree V bits from them. And the rest of them are just their standard spiral bits from a 16th of an inch all the way up to a half inch. I've tried cheap bits and while they may cut nice once or twice, they don't last very long. And Mm -hmm. I end up tossing them and wasting money after a couple passes. Uh, With the brands I mentioned, whether that be Whiteside, Freud, or the Bits and Bits, you pay a little more, but they last a whole lot longer and uh, you get what you pay for. So those are the three brands that I primarily stick to. What about you guys? Well, I've used mainly Whiteside, Freud, CMT, and I also use Infinity from Infinity Cutting Tools. And those are the ones that uh, I use mainly and that I've had great success with. Now, I've, I've just like you, Sean, have bought some of the less expensive bits that come in like a kit of 15, and they've all at some point have broken or uh, are just dull and I never bothered to uh, to use them again. So I tossed them out. You get into this hobby thinking that you need to get that big kit of, of bits and that'll just cover everything. But what you realize later is that uh, you get what you pay for and getting getting a $30 roundover bit just lasts so much longer. I've got a white side bit that's like three or four years old that's a quarter inch roundover and I've been using it I've never had it sharpened and it still cuts very nicely. It's very sharp. And so, you know, just, I, I think just mainly staying with the one, the well-known bits like the white side, Freud, CMT, uh, Amana, infinity, all the ones that he mentioned, I, I've not tried Irwin, but all the ones that he mentioned I've, I've used before and they're fairly good. So can't really add more than what you had got, uh, Sean, how about you guy? Typically, if it doesn't say white side on it, I'm not buying it. There are times when I, I buy some Freud here and there. I won't buy CMT bits anymore. I've never tried the Amana. I have not tried the Infinity, but I'm of the opinion of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. As far as the large sets that are like 50 bucks, where you get you know 20 bits for 50 bucks, my thought process on that is, Absolutely buy a set of those, especially quarter inch shank. There are times when you're trying to do something Mm -hmm. with either a trim router or in your router table, doesn't matter, where you need this one bit and you don't have it. It's nice to have that cheap bit that's in one of those big multi-pack sets that you're only going to use like maybe twice in 20 years. It'll work fine. It really will. But it's nice to have that variety. I've got a set of MLCS or MCLS bits. I think it's MLCS. Yeah. That I bought over 25 years ago, and I still have them, and I still use them. Are they cheap? Yep. Are they incredibly... I shouldn't say... I'd say, are they work as good as a white side? Nope. But there are times I'm really glad I had a quarter inch box core bit. Yup. 
I'm just being honest with you. Mm-hmm. But having a big set like that is a big plus. You may not use them all the time. You may, I have bits in that box that I've never even used. They've still got the protective coating on them, but I still have them. My, that, and that's just my opinion. Typically, like I said, I'm buying Whiteside or Freud, but I have bought those. I have bought uh, a couple times big sets of things just to have them. And you're absolutely right. There are times where I've gone into my, my kit and found that one bit. It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. I do have that. I don't have to order it. It is very convenient. You're right. I'm sitting here preaching about don't buy cheap bits. And <laughs> guys, I fell for it. I'm looking at my Amazon order history. I needed a dovetail bit. And I bought this five pack for 17 bucks. I don't expect. <laughs> I, don't, I don't expect much out of it. Okay, you're I such just, a do as I say kind of person. <laughs> I was. Yeah. I needed one bit for one task, and I could get a five pack of different sizes. And I was like, "Huh, this brand K Quaker looks like just the bit set for me." And I bought it. <laughs> but all I need is one bit for one task for one project. And you bought the five set. Yeah, I, I was. I wasn't going to say anything to anybody and try to promote this as something to buy because it's probably not worth buying. But I will report back what my findings on these bits are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can't be good, but we'll see. Yeah, there was a time I needed a rail and style bit to make like three doors for someone, and it was a profile I didn't have. And I was like, you know, what? I'm not going to spend you know, hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars on a on a set of bits for it. So I bought a cheap, I think they're like Orinco or something like that <laughs> from from, Am, from Amazon. And it was like, you know, 30 bucks. Yeah. It got through my project. I'm fine with that. You know, mm-hmm. the thing you get with more expensive bits, especially like a white side or a Freud, and I'm sure a mana and affinity also. Again, I can't comment on their bits because I've never used them. They're they're A, they're gonna have thicker carbide on them. Number one. Number two is they're going to be much better balanced. So there's going to be less chattering and things like that. It's just going to leave a cleaner cut. They're just going to last longer. So, and whenever I can, I always buy half inch shank bits. Yeah. Because I've I've got that I've got that large set of cheap quarter inch ones, <laughs> <laughs> so you got them all covered. You're all stocked up on the quarter inch ones. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, I have been testing the, uh, the the bits from Bits and Bits, and they are Astra coated. They do sell uh, coated bits as well that last a whole. Aren't lot those longer. white side? Aren't those white side bits that they put coating on? They are putting their coating on white side bits, but they sell their own bits as well. Okay. Okay. And they are Astra coated. Um, some of the bits that you can buy, and they last a whole lot longer. They're coated. They're coated with ass, ass, <laughs> and tra. All I know, Hui, is that they're Astra coated and allows for higher speed and fee rate, and as well as extended tool life and increased lub. Wow, lubricity. Lubri- Say that big word for me, Hui. Lubricity. I don't yeah. know. I, in abrasive material. Well, if you had like an eighth inch bit that had this special ass coating on it <laughs> could you could you could you cut let's say you put that on a cnc machine oh could you could you cut like a quarter inch deep hard maple at 600 inch per minute if uh, your machine not, would allow for that if your machine would allow that let me open up my cnc calculator and i, I don't know i don't know <laughs> i know where the this conversation's going guy <laughs> i'm just wondering i'm just it would probably break 
Let, oh, I tell okay. you what. So the bits re- the limiting factor there. Yeah, well, I will reach out okay. to okay. I will reach out to bits and bits and ask them of the max feed rate on that on that bit if it's astro coded, and it's probably not six hundred inches per minute. Okay, just checking. <laughs> That's an inside joke, people. Yeah, we, we won't we won't discuss it any further than that. Yeah. I'm busting Queeves uh, balls. Yeah, we had a yep. pre podcast podcast on CNCs. It seemed like yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, but uh, yep. Thanks for the question, Nicholas. Guy or uh, Hui, I'm sorry. What do you have for us for your last question? Yep, it's me with the last question. And the question is from Paul. Are there any pieces of furniture that are in your home that you wish you had not bought or made? I often look at the furniture that I bought from a certain Swedish brand and I wish I had time to make something nicer or better. Thanks, guys. Love the podcast and keep it keep up the great work. Yep, I absolutely do. I have an Ikea dresser that I had to buy because I did not have the time to build a dresser for my daughter's for my daughter's nursery. And so we bought an Ikea dresser. And you know what? It actually is holding up pretty nice. Uh, You know, we're just putting baby clothes in it. And I'm sure that it will need to be replaced or uh, I will like to replace it by making one at one point. But I don't know if I could say that uh, I wish I hadn't bought it. I bought it because I needed it and the time was of the essence and there was no way I was going to be able to make a dresser in time for the arrival of our child, even though it's not like she needed the dresser immediately, but a certain someone was kind of lighting a fire under my butt to get it done <laughs> or or buy it. Um, so so that fire was getting kind of kind of red hot. So uh, so we bought a dresser. It'll probably get replaced in the future, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm definitely guilty of it. I'm guilty of buying an IKEA piece of furniture. So, what about something you wish you didn't make? Ooh, I don't know. You know, I can't really say there's anything that I wish I didn't make because everything I've made, I've had some pretty good lessons on, regardless. And every single piece that I've I've made, I've I've had a sentimental attachment to, for sure. Hmm. How about you, Sean? Um, Any regrets? Yeah. Uh, I'll start off with something I wish I had not purchased. And this is before I say, I don't know if it counts because I don't, I've not purchased any furniture since I started woodworking. So I'm just going to skip that and, and say, um, everything that I purchased before or when I moved into this home before I started woodworking, I wish I didn't buy, but, uh, there is one piece that I wish I would not have made. And, uh, luckily it's at my parents' house. I don't have to look at it. It's, it's, it's a table. It's bigger or larger than a, uh, like a hall table, but smaller than a kitchen table. The sizing is all off. The design of the legs is terrible. It just, uh, it's just an <laughs> ugly design that I don't have any documentation, no photos, no nothing, nor will I ever take photos of it. But my, mom and dad love it, right? Oh yeah. They got all the pictures of grandkids and everything on it. They love it. They love it. I don't, but you know, it's what, it's all that matters. They love it, I guess. <laughs> what about you sure. guys? Um, I really don't have any regrets about anything I've made or anything I've bought. I, I mean, most of the stuff I buy are things I can't make. Mm. You know, we bought a, a, a new sofa and love seat. I'm not going to make a sofa and love seat. What do I know about that stuff? Mm-hmm. My wife bought chairs for our dining room after I made the dining room table because she wanted upholstered, fully upholstered chairs. I'm not going to make those. I don't know anything about upholstery. And I'm, I'm not going to go down that road and spend eight months trying to figure it out and get it done right just to have them turn out to be crap. 
when I can just, just spend, we spent the money, well, they weren't cheap, but it was a better way to go. There are times when you just have to figure out what the diminishing return number is. Uh, a good example is we have this swing on our back porch that's made out of some material. I don't even know where, somewhere in the Southeast Asia, I'm sure. You know, my wife said, well, I want it. She wanted a new swing for the back porch. And it's like, okay. So I start looking at that. And then we start talking about designs. You know, like three weeks goes by. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, it isn't getting done. And I'm trying to figure out design and source materials. And then she walks down and says, what about this? And she shows me a picture of something from some, you know, mail order company. It was like $250. I said, buy it. <laughs> right. And, and it, it came in a nice, you know, cardboard box i took it on the back patio and put it together and uh, it took me a couple three hours but i've got to put together the instructions were crappy but i got to put together and it's been out there for i think about three or four years now and it still looks fine it was mm-hmm. it was a better way there's sometimes it's better to buy things than it is to make things right that's just my opinion but i can't think of anything that i really wish i hadn't made I'm trying to think. Not not really, no. No boxes, nothing like that? There's a couple boxes. There are things I've made that I didn't like when I got done with them, but I never said, boy, I wish I hadn't made that. Because it, even if it's even if it comes out crappy, it's still, you know, you learn from your mistakes. Uh, I'm looking at a box right now that I made, and I'm going, boy, that thing looks like garbage. Every time I look, every time I look at it, I go, "Okay, I, I know what not to do again." If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you learn from from that box. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So. And there's just the enjoyment of being out there too. I mean, that's worth something. At least it is to me. Just being yeah. out there, and even if it's not, you know, the most beautiful or something that I wouldn't particularly care to make again, it's well, I enjoyed the time out there. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, guys, I think that pretty much wraps up the questions. I think now we're going to be going to our woodworker highlights. Uh, Sean, who would you like to highlight this week? I want to highlight at Mark Builds It on Instagram. He makes and sells not only stunningly beautiful workbenches, but also shave horses, tool chests, and custom furniture. He also teaches classes on how to make the Rubo workbenches. He has a fantastic feed, very inspirational. You're going to learn a lot following along on his builds give him a follow at mark builds it guy how about you my pick this week is matt cook and he's a maker from the i believe he's in the uk and his handle on instagram is satan's dog with two g's matt is kind of an interesting guy <laughs> to say the least. Uh, yeah, but he makes he makes some great uh, marking knives. And every time I look at one of his marking knives, I said, man, I'd really like to have one of those. But, you know, shipping and everything from the UK is just, it's got to be a nightmare. So I've, I've never pursued it. But he makes some really cool looking stuff. And he makes stash boxes too, if you're into that sort of thing. Um hmm. But yeah, he's he's got a good feed. He posts regularly, and uh, he does really good work. Nice. Chui, what about you? My feature for the week is Leslie Webb Design. That's L-E-S-L-I-E, 
Webb with two Bs, Design. I really enjoy her modern take on things such as her rocker. She uses a lot of weaving and a lot of miters on some of her tables. Really beautiful work. She also teaches at the Austin School of Furniture. I like how she changes uh, the design of some very uh, typical pieces and, and how she sort of puts her own voice and her own look on, on even the m- more modern pieces that we're sort of familiar with. So definitely take a look at her stuff. Uh, she takes amazing photography as well. And I think you'll get a lot of inspiration from the things that she puts out. So Leslie Webb Design. I think that wraps up the show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer your questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplife.com or you can DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and the feedback. You can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Uh, Guyswoodshop.com. Sean? I can be found at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. And I want to mention, we have uh, another contest on simplecove.com. Just kicked off summer woodwork, summer 2019 woodworking contest. And Guy Dunlap is the guest judge on this one. So there are some amazing prizes. Get your project submitted at simplecove.com. And I can be bribed. I, there's a rumor going around <laughs> that, that I'm very virtuous and you can't bribe me. And I, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So Cash only. I, I can't, I can't, I can't say anything on that. But Guy is the guest judge. Amazing prizes like a track saw and all kinds of good stuff. Check it out at simplecove.com. Hui, what about you? I already said. Oh, sorry. And and he, was, he was he was so desperate to get that plug in there. You just weren't listening to Hui. You know, I was listening to Hui. <laughs> All right. Anyway, sorry. You go ahead and close it out, Hui. Well, guys, I'll see you on the next episode. Take care. See ya. See ya. Hui, oh, off to you. <laughs>